Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 1st, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Melissa and I leave for Ohio in the morning, hoping to see Clifton Emmerheiser complete his physical therapy so that we may relocate him to Florida. Clifton as we spoke yesterday, seems to be in good spirits and is looking forward to the move and to having our company. Tonight we are going to present part 16 in the series of special notices to all who deny to Seedline. I will get back to Paul's first epistle to Timothy as soon as I can and perhaps even from Ohio because I plan to be there through the week. Here in our Bible studies, I would not normally offer a summary of things that I said in a Saturday program which mostly concerns recent political and social issues. But on this occasion, to begin with such a summary may be appropriate. Last week, presenting our recent program in the wake of Charlottesville, I began with a discussion of the historic basis in America for what is now called white nationalism. Now let me state that when I use the term nationalism, I am referring to a strictly ethnic nationalism and not any false so-called civic nationalism. Ethnic nationalism is the only valid form of nationalism and civic nationalism is entirely artificial, unnatural, and can only be enforced by tyranny. It is empiricism and not nationalism at all. So I began by explaining that the American Union was first founded for the benefit of a particular group of white and Christian men and for their posterity, meaning their descendants. That fact alone demonstrates that this union was originally intended to benefit one particular race of people exclusive of all others and actually only a portion of that race of people. Then I explained that when that element of the Union was undermined following the War of Northern Aggression, even some of the Yankee states had refused to ratify the constitutional amendments which facilitated such a treachery. Later, speaking of more recent events, I showed that even within the last decade, modern international courts and treaties recognized the rights of a people to self-determination based upon traditions and culture, ethnicity, historical ties and heritage, and a sense of identity or kinship, among other things. As I had also explained last Saturday, I did not make such a presentation because I think that we are actually going to achieve justice based on the ideals expressed by governments. But rather, I wanted to demonstrate the hypocrisy of the current liberal establishment, which only a few years ago bombed a certain European nation to uphold those very ideals which white nationalists espouse today. The world is hypocritical. We must understand that we have no political solution. 
but my purpose was to show that nationalists do indeed stand on principles which have been recognized throughout history. So I made that presentation with the purpose to demonstrate some of the historical basis for nationalism. It is only with an understanding of that basis that we can realize just how far the world which we now perceive through the media has departed from historic norms. But the world was not always perceived as we now perceive it. In chapter 12 of his treatise on the Jews and their lies, Martin Luther said the following concerning the apostolic age. And I quote, They interpreted the writings of the prophets with power and correct understanding. In addition, they performed such signs and wonders that their message was accepted throughout the world by Judeans and Gentiles. Then in chapter 13 of that same work, he said, It is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing that the, quote-unquote, that the Gentiles in all the world accepted, past tense, without sword or coercion, with no temporal benefits accruing to them, gladly and freely, a poor man of the Judeans as the true Messiah, one whom his own people had crucified, condemned, cursed, and persecuted without end. Now the Jews were not really his own people, but Martin Luther was evidently ignorant of the large Edomite presence among the Judeans and especially among their rulers. Now Luther said these things in an age of exploration where he knew full well that there were countless non-white people on the planet who had not accepted the gospel of Christ or who had not even heard of it. He was also very well familiar with the Mohammedan Turks who were making war upon Christendom as he wrote. Therefore Luther could not have considered those non-white races and regions to be a part of his world of so-called Gentiles. Or he could not have honestly stated that the gospel had already been accepted throughout the world. Luther's world was not the planet. The modern electronic media and the current ease of travel over great distances has forced upon us a changed perspective of what constitutes the world. However, what we now consider the world is not the world of Scripture. The Bible represents a series of covenants between Yahweh God and a certain family of man, a family which was prophesied to become a group of nations. These covenants made with a specific people, the house of Judah and the house of Israel, as Paul attests in Hebrews chapter 8, cannot be disannulled or added to, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3. The Bible also tells us in Genesis 3.15, as well as in Revelation chapters 12 and 20, that a certain serpent also called the dragon, the devil, or Satan, 
would wage perpetual war against the seed of the woman, which is later called the camp of the saints, which are those same nations that are subject to those covenants with God, and which turn to Christ in the apostolic age, or soon thereafter, as Luther described. As the gospel spread throughout that world, as Luther had acknowledged. These chapters of the Revelation also inform us that the serpent would send a flood from its mouth to devour the woman. That flood is ostensibly the same phenomenon which is also described in Revelation chapter 20 as the gathering of other alien nations from the four corners of the earth in an attempt to destroy the seed of the woman which is inhabiting the camp of the saints. The historical portions of scripture as well as the prophecies concerning the children of Israel prove that the nations of Luther's world are indeed the camp of the saints, the people who are subject to the covenants of God and the Gentiles to whom the gospel was presented. Both Genesis and Revelation describe the war which we, which these people, the seed of the woman, would be caught up in because of the sin of their first parents. So if this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is confirmed in the Revelation, then we had, we had better understand that these nations which Satan gathers against the camp of the saints are from the part of the serpent and have no part with the woman. That is how they are described as a flood spewing forth from the mouth of the serpent in Revelation chapter 12. The chapter concludes by saying, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. That dragon, being that old serpent, as it was explained earlier in the chapter. We see the enmity of Genesis 3.15 confirmed in the revelation of Christ. And beyond the crucifixion of Christ, where the dragon continues that enmity with the seed of the woman. Properly, nations are people groups, ethnicities, and not governmental or geographical entities. We have a historic basis for nationalism. And here we have a traditional Christian basis for nationalism. But from a secular perspective, nationalism has no moral basis by itself because outside of an acceptance of the God of Scripture, morals become relative. So this proper interpretation of the Christian Scriptures is the only sound moral basis for nationalism. This is why, to the Jew, Christians are Nazis and must be eradicated, and identity Christians are the biggest Nazis of all.
Once we realize the true intentions of our enemies, only then do we realize that there is no middle ground for us to stand on. Therefore, identity Christians must reject all so-called teachers and pastors who refuse to acknowledge that this war is ongoing and who refuse to properly identify the modern nations with the descriptions of them in ancient scripture. Identity Christians must reject all so-called pastors and teachers who seek middle ground to stand upon. They must be soundly rejected. The Ted Wylands of the world must be strongly rebuked and rejected. I had a friend on social media tell me this afternoon that he encountered a Ted Wyland follower who was defending a form of universalism. And when he questioned him, and I had this experience myself, which I've explained many times here, with Ted Wyland himself, when this person questioned this follower of Ted Wyland, the person fled from him, rejected him, blocked him. That's what they do. They can't stand being questioned. They're willing to compromise with the world and seek that middle ground so that they may be comfortable with the world. A friend of the world is an enmity, is an enmity, is an enemy of God, as the Apostle James wrote. We seek to properly identify the parties of Scripture, not only the twelve tribes of Israel, but all of the parties of Scripture. That is what Christian identity is. A proper identification of the parties of Scripture with their modern counterparts in the world of today. If we do not properly identify these parties, we may end up as victims in this war which is being waged against our Adamic and Israelite race, rather than being counted among the victors. In turn, if we deceive others with any misidentification of these parties, we make ourselves into accomplices in the murders of our own brethren. There is no middle ground in this war. One may be either hot or cold, but if one is lukewarm, our Christ will spew him out of his mouth. As he himself had warned, in Revelation chapter 3. And with this, we shall commence with Clifton Emmeheiser's special notice to all who deny two sea line, part 16. Clifton begins on this same note. Once more, he says, I will reiterate that we are at war. And I am not referring to the war between the quote-unquote spirit and the flesh, as the anti-seedliners do. Yes, there is a war, or a struggle, between the spirit and the flesh, and I wouldn't discredit it in the least. 
But the war I am speaking of is an entirely different conflict. The war I'm addressing is the war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. How can anyone deny that there are two seeds mentioned in Genesis 3.15? But deny it, they do. And let me say that this is the original concept of the Christian soldier, that we bear the whole armor of God, that we put away our fleshly lusts, and when we overcome the struggle with our flesh and our lusts, then, and only then, are we useful to our God in the struggle against his enemies. So it, for us, is a twofold war to overcome the desires of the flesh so that we can be found worthy to stand against the enemies of our God. As we have stated, the war which is prophesied in Genesis 3.15 is confirmed in the Revelation in chapters 12 and 20. And if we properly interpret and identify the characters in that war, as well as the identity of the recipients of the promises of Yahweh God to Israel, then we have the key to the meanings of the parables of Christ. And we can come to an understanding of the identity of the sheep nations and the goat nations, and the wheat and the tares, and the good fish and the bad fish in the net. This is rather simple. The sheep nations are the nations of which consist the camp of the saints. The goat nations are the nations which Satan gathers to encompass the camp of the saints. The wheat are the children of God. And the tares are the bastards which result from the deceit of the devil. So also with the good and bad fish and all of the similar parables of Christ. Continuing with Clifton's discussion of the anti-seed liners, they use some of the most fantastic arguments in an attempt to disprove that the fact, the fact that we are engaged in a war which began in Genesis chapter 3, most anti-seed liners trace the bad fig Jews back to Esau, with which I do not disagree. And of course we do agree, but it goes back further than Esau, and that's where they refuse to tread. Clifton says, but if one will notice the various wives whom Esau married, one will discover they were mainly from the ten Canaanite nations of which the Kenites were a part, citing Genesis chapter 15. If one will check the Strong's number for Kenite, one will see that it is, numbers 70, 17, and 70, 14. Then checking those numbers, they will be found to mean Cain, or the tribe which descended from Cain, the one who murdered Abel. Now whether you believe that Satan or Adam was Cain's father, Scripture definitely proves that Esau's children had Cain's blood flowing in their veins. This fact is confirmed 
by the Messiah himself in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35. And actually Esau's first two wives were a Hittite and a Hivite. And I am persuaded that the word Hivite is a scribal error for Horite. And I can demonstrate that in scripture. His third wife was an Ishmaelite. But then he and his descendants dwelt in Mount Seir, which is also called Mount Hor, with the Horites, which was another branch of the race of the Canaanites. Here Clifton cites Matthew 23.35, but we would rather cite the version offered by Luke, which is free of suspected interpolation. And where Christ had told his adversaries that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this and the King James Version has of this generation from the blood of Abel under the blood of Zacharias which perished between the altar and the temple verily I say unto you it shall be required of this generation where the King James Version has generation, speaking of children and fathers, both near and remote, the word is much better interpreted as race, which is the primary meaning of the corresponding Greek term. Only the descendants of Cain could be held responsible for the blood of Abel, as Yahweh God is just in his execution of the law. So Clifton continues with an example. The very nature of Cain displayed itself in Doeg the Edomite's killing of 85 of Yahweh's priests of the linen ephod at King Saul's command, recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 22. This leaves the whole matter dependent on Genesis 4.1, for which both the Masoretic and Septuagint texts are ambiguously obscure. Thankfully, we have a witness which is much clearer than the usual, accepted rendering of that verse, and which is contextually in agreement with the rest of Scripture. Let's take a look at it, and again quoting the Targum of Jonathan, which we will comment on shortly. The Targum of Jonathan on Genesis 4.1 and Clifton quotes, And Adam knew his wife Eve, who was pregnant by the angel Samael. And she conceived and bare Cain. And he was like the heavenly beings, and not like earthly beings. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. Clifton says, Whether we, whether or not we agree with this rendering depends on how badly we want to correlate this passage to correspond with and measure up to the rest of the word. If the anti-seedliners don't accept this rendering, one would think they would at least recognize that the Jews are the descendants of Cain. They simply don't believe their Bible. They therefore demand that the Almighty accept their personally contrived dogmas and opinions on Scripture. And it's absolutely true that the Edomites in Judea can be shown to be a preponderance of the 
post-Christian Jews and that they indeed descended in part from Cain and the Rephaim and the other tribes of the Canaanites in Genesis chapter 15. Clifton was obviously happy to have found this material from Scott Stinson regarding the Targums. He found it through Ted Wyland himself, and he is going to carry it as far as he can. But Clifton is not really asserting that the Targum has the authority of Scripture. Rather, in my opinion, it only reflects how one interpreter of Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 understood that the verse should be interpreted. Not necessarily accepting that particular interpretation, we must nevertheless acknowledge that there are other early interpreters who have held a similar opinion, and not only in the Targums. For instance, we read the following, which was written about a mother in distress in 4 Maccabees chapter 18 from Breton Septuagint from verse 7. And the righteous mother of the seven children spoke as follows to her offspring. She's appealing to her own morality. I was a pure virgin and went not beyond my father's house. But I took care of the built-up rib, a reference to Eve. No destroyer of the desert or ravisher of the plain injured me, nor did the destructive deceitful snake, an obvious reference to the serpent of Genesis, make spoil of my chaste virginity. And I remained with my husband during the period of my prime. Adam left Eve behind so that he could go watch football. While it is apocryphal, 4 Maccabees is by no means a Jewish or Talmudic work, but it, but it is an early Christian work. And very much like Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, in that we see a clear analogy referring to the virginity of Eve as having been spoiled by a deceitful serpent, which, as we learn in the Revelation, or in the epistles of the other apostles, notably Jude, was actually a so-called fallen angel. So while the Targum may have been an innovation upon the scripture, it was certainly in line with the way that at least some early Christians had thought about the scripture, Therefore, if Genesis 4.1 alone leads you to believe that Cain was a son of Adam, that belief is soundly challenged, and that verse is demonstrably corrupt, so it should be subject to serious reconsideration. A doctrine should not be made without two or three sound and uncontestable witnesses. And Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 has no second witness. Clifton continues his discussion with another example from the Gospel. One such passage of Scripture the anti seed liners take vehement exception to as proving two seed line doctrine is found at Matthew chapter 13 verses 24 through 30 and 37 through 
43. About the wheat and the tares. While Stephen E. Jones and Jeffrey A. Weekly avoid comment on this topic, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore and Ted Wyland jump right in where angels fear to tread. Clifton making a sort of pun. Before examining those passages in Matthew chapter 13, it would be advisable to read them. And quoting from verse 24, read them we shall. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven, these are the words of Christ now, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the weed and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did not you sow good seed in your field? From where then does it have tares? And I had to modernize those verses just a little. He said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Will you then that we go up and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now that part is the parable. And now Clifton offers the interpretation where the apostles had begged of Christ to explain it to them. So he moves on to verse 37, where the interpretation begins. He answered, and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. Ho poneros, the wicked one, because it's the adjective wicked with the definite article, which refers to a particular wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Clifton now responds and he says, It's simply fantastic the various interpretations the anti-seedliners put on this passage, most of which they have brought with them out of Judeo-unchristian churches and seminaries. Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore, a vehement anti-seedliner, 
comments thus in his paper, or perhaps it was originally a booklet, Seed of Satan, literal or figurative, on page 15, concerning the words tares and children in this segment of scripture in Matthew chapter 13. And quoting Jack Moore, he says, Apparently the disciples were intrigued by this parable, but could not understand its meaning. So Jesus explained it to them and told them that the tares, the Zidzanian, the false darnel grain, which looks like wheat, were the children of the wicked one. The word children in Greek is huios and means immediate, remote, or figurative kinship. So if the word can refer to figurative kinship, why are the seed liners so adamant in stating it means literal kinship? And I'm going to answer that. Throughout the scripture, the planting of seed or trees is used as an allegory for races and families of people. This is true, for example, in Genesis chapter 3, in Jeremiah chapter 2, and in Ezekiel chapter 31. But where the parable is explained, and this is the important part, which refutes everything that Jack Moore says very handily, but where the parable is explained, the words in the explanation must be taken literally, or the explanation is not an explanation. If the words in the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares are to be interpreted figuratively, then is the explanation of the parable only another parable which needs to be further explained? If Christ had meant followers, figurative descendants, he would have had to have said followers since he was explaining the original parable to his apostles and not merely giving them another parable. That is the childish sophistry found in the denial of the anti-seed liners. Now we will read Clifton's response to Jack Moore. Maybe I should call him Jackie Pooh. I wish he were alive so I could do that. Had Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore checked with the Thayer Greek-English Lexicon, the Complete Word Study Dictionary New Testament by Spirosodiates, or an Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words by W.E. Vine, instead of the limited definition found in Strong's, he would have found the primary meaning for the word children, it's actually the word huios, which is literally a son, for the word children, number 5207 in Strong's Concordance, means a male offspring, in a wider sense, a descendant, or in plural, descendants, or posterity. Clifton says, in a parenthetical remark, this definition is from Zodiates, and the others agree. <coughs> Excuse me. Then he goes on to say that there is a secondary figurative sense which can apply, and I will give you an example. The disciples were called sons of thunder. And I would add that since thunder cannot have literal children, the word sons must be interpreted figuratively.
Clifton says, that had more read Strong's more carefully, he would have noticed that it mentioned immediate kinship first. One's immediate kinship would be one's own son. Strong's gave more three choices, and he rejected the first two, and implied that figurative kinship was the only one mentioned, or at least relevant. Such a maneuver is hardly honest. It is apparent that Moore already had his mind made up what he thought it should be. Secondly, Moore forgets, Jack Moore, forgets that Messiah himself said, Seed are children, in the explanation to the parable. Therefore, seed and children cannot be separated. Consequently, it is highly essential to find out what the word seed means. The Greek word for seed is sperma. This is where we get the English word sperm. According to Zodiates, on page 1304, sperma is also figuratively used of living beings as the seed of man, or posterity, or descendants. In this case, Clifton says, figuratively means comparing man's seed to agricultural seed, and that is exactly what this parable is doing in comparing Satan's offspring to tares. And once again, I would say that if Satan's seed, or children, were merely men who chose to follow Satan, then Christ would have had to use the term followers in his explanation of the parable, or the explanation would not be an explanation at all. Clifton continues to address this, and he says, Thirdly, we must check out the one responsible for planting the Darnell-like, or tear-like, genetic people. In the parable of the wheat and hares, the word wicked is poneros, and is used with the definite article, ho, in Matthew chapter 13, Ephesians chapter 6, 1 John chapter 1, and 1 John chapters 3 and 5. And it means Satan, the wicked one. At least it refers to Satan. Thus in 1 John 3.12 where it says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one. It means exactly what it says, Satan. Furthermore, the word wicked, number 4190, Poneros, in that same verse, according to Zodiates on page 1198, is used with the definite article ho and means the evil one or Satan just as it is in Matthew 13.38, which is the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And additionally, I would assert that it could also, this phrase, the wicked one, it could also refer to any one particular individual from a large collection of entities whose origins are described in Revelation chapter 12 and who are in irreconcilable opposition to God. Therefore, they are a permanent and collective Satan, a permanent collection of wicked ones, at least permanent until they're cast into the lake of fire. Continuing with Clifton, he says that the book of Synonyms of the New Testament by Richard Trench confirms what Zodiate says about the word wicked on page 330. 
Satan is emphatically Ho'oponeros, as the first author of all the mischief in the world. In his Greek-English New Testament lexicon, George Rigoberry on page 82 describes Ho'oponeros as the wicked one, i.e. Satan. W.E. Vine in his An Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words under Wicked on Matthew 13.38 states, And in the following, meaning Matthew 13.38, where Satan is mentioned as the or that evil one, and Clifton makes a parenthetical remark here, don't waste your time with Strong's on this one. Another way to verify that the wicked of Matthew 13.38 is speaking of Satan is to go to Matthew 13.19, where the same Greek word, poneros, is used, where it says, Then cometh the wicked one. Then compare the parallel passage in Luke 8.12, which says, Then cometh the devil. And Clifton offers a conclusion. The seed, or children, in Matthew 13.38, planted by the wicked one, are the genetic offspring of Satan. And as I have explained, the alternative is that the explanation of the parable is only another parable, which would mean that Christ did not explain it at all, in spite of the fact that his explanation was at the request of the apostles who desired for him to explain it. So, if he explained it, then the children are literal children. They must be. There's no other choice. Clifton says, in his attempt to spiritualize and take a figurative view of the tares, in Matthew chapter 13, Ted R. Wyland, in his booklet Eve, did she or didn't she? Perhaps I should call that one a book. It's more substantial. In a rebuff of a quotation by James E. Wise makes this statement and James E. Wise had written an early and popular two-sea-line tract. In his attempt to spiritualize and take a figurative view of the tares I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. In Matthew 13, Ted R. Wyland, in his Eve, Did She or Didn't She, in a rebuff of a quotation by James E. Wise, makes this statement. Furthermore, quoting Wyland, if the seed liner's interpretation of the wheat and tares parable is accurate, and if the tares in Matthew 13 represent all the seed line of Satan through Cain, then there is no alternative but to accept that the wheat represents all the physical seed line of Eve through Seth. And of course it does, and Clifton will comment on that. Wyland then says, The wheat in this parable depicts the sons of the kingdom. And by this interpretation, the wheat would automatically be the sons of the kingdom by their heritage. That is, they would be saved by their race or lineage. If this is true then Yahshua's death, burial, and resurrection were wholly unnecessary. Of course, this hypothesis flies in the face of the entire Bible. And Wyland is very far off again. Of course, Paul of Tarsus himself 
explained that the Adamic race is indeed saved by its heritage or race, where he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Christ came not for naught. Christ came to reconcile the entire race to himself for various reasons, principally to show us, to show, to display to men the importance of keeping the law. And there are several aspects of that in his death and resurrection, which Wyland misses entirely. But Wyland seems to profess a works salvation, which the scripture clearly refutes. Clifton responds to Wyland, and he says, Well, what do you know? Except for the last two sentences, Wyland got something right. After all, Hebrews 12, chapter Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8 says, We are either sons or bastards, and there isn't anything in between. And all this bullmanor, Clifton's words, about being born again is totally an incorrect translation and interpretation. That verse, referring to John 3.3, 3, that verse is not saying born again, but born from above. Actually, if one will check that verse out, it is saying that one must be born of the correct race. To show you this, we will investigate the meaning of the word born, as it is used in John 3.3, 3, which has the Strong's number 1080, and the word is a verb, it's geneo. Strong's number 1080 in the Greek. For this we will go to the complete word study dictionary New Testament by Spiro Zodiates on page 364. Zodiates tells us that this word means generation, kind, offspring, and the primary definition is spoken of men to beget, spoken of women to bear or bring forth, to be begotten, to be born as used generally. In other words, when an Adamic white person is born in the flesh, he is also born of the spirit. Other races are not born of that spirit, nor can they ever be. Zoriates points out that born as used here, geneo, is from another word, genos, which in turn means offspring, posterity, family, lineage, stock. You can also check this with Strong's. But you must follow through to 1085, or genos, to get the entire meaning, the root word of geneo. If you should check only the word 1080, geneo, you will not fully understand the implications, for it is speaking of race. John 331 makes it clear there are heavenly people from above, and people that are of the earth, earthly. Our Redeemer told the Jews, in John chapter 8, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. Thus, like us, he was also born from above, of the white race, of the Adamic race, Adam being the Son of God, as it says in Luke chapter 3. Clifton says, I do not want to leave the impression that we should not be converted, though. It's not a matter, as the Babylonian prostitute preachers imply, 
that one should accept the Lord Jesus as our personal Savior. It's not a question of whether we accept Yahshua, but whether or not he accepts us. And as much as he died 2,000 years ago for our redemption, he has already accepted us. To be truly converted, we must accept his redemption, which brings about communion. We have entrance to God through Christ, as Paul explains. Conversion does not consist of being regenerated by the Spirit, but of being turned around and about face, where in the past we were sinners, breakers of Yahweh's law. We do a 180, 180 degree turn, and start, to the best of our ability, to keep his laws. And I want to expound on this just a little bit, because I think Clifton's real close here. Psalm 51 informs us that such conversion is something which we hope for upon our repentance from sin. And I will read from verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities, the writer appealing to God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The writer knows that he can't do it himself. He's appealing to God to do it for him. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall spew, shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. Words that Yahshua later quotes from Hosea. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, until then, I'm sorry, then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Ultimately, such a conversion, as we've seen here, is not in the hands of man. Rather, it is only in the hands of God himself. Notice the words of the psalm where it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, we have the following promise, and I will read from verse 1 for several verses through verse 6. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, the blessings and curses of obedience and disobedience explained in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29. When all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt 
Call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh thy God has driven thee, and shalt return unto Yahweh thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and all thy soul. That then Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity, and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations where Yahweh thy God has scattered thee. These words are still in effect. They don't apply to any other race but the children of Israel to whom they are addressed. If any of thine be driven out unto the outmost parts of heaven, from thence will Yahweh thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee, and Yahweh thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And Yahweh thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul that thou may live. Or that thou mayest live. This process which we've seen here We've seen it here in Deuteronomy as a promise. We've seen it in the psalm as a prayer. And and as a, an, a petition to God. This process is summarized in 1 Peter chapter 5. In verse 10, where the apostle wrote, But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, after that you have suffered a while those curses of Deuteronomy 28 and 29 after you have suffered a while make you perfect that God will make you perfect establish strengthen and settle you Paul of Tarsus described this very similarly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 where he said, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ directs our way unto you. And the Lord makes you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. And that word man is added to the text. I am reading the King James Version. It should probably be interpreted to say, and towards all Israelites or all Adamic men even as we do towards you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Where Yahweh establishes our hearts, which we see here in Paul and also in Peter, we read in Deuteronomy that Yahweh thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed, to love Yahweh thy God with all thine heart. So while men may seek repentance, finding it and being established in it is solely by the grace of God. Remember that Esau sought repentance, and he did not find it. As Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 12, because for him, Yahweh had another purpose. Returning to Clifton, he also explains this in another manner.
He says, I know that many who are reading this have experienced conversion. Whatever kind of prayer we made at that time, it was necessary for the Spirit to intercede on our behalf. Citing Romans chapter 8, verse 26. It's only conjecture what groanings the Spirit might have uttered. But perhaps it might have gone something like this. And Clifton is creating a little prayer of repentance here. Here is an Israelite under the covenant of Abraham who has come to the realization that he or she is a lawbreaker and wishes to plead the blood of redemption on his or her behalf. He or she promises hereafter, based upon the light of the written word, to do his or her best, to reject the leaven of the Pharisees, and to return to the faith of the patriarchs. Clifton says, don't worry about the exact words you might have prayed at your conversion. If the conversion already happened, you don't really need to worry. For the Spirit interceded and presented them before the throne in an appropriate manner. Also, don't distress yourself about all the members of your family kin who were never converted. If they were not converted in this life, they will be in the next, for it is written, Every Adamic knee shall bow to me, and every Adamic tongue shall confess to God. Citing Romans 14.11, Clifton interpolated the words Adamic. And he says that some of us Adamite Israelites send our sins ahead to the judgment, while for other Adamic Israelites... Their sins will follow them to the judgment, citing 1 Timothy 5.24. And that is no sign that the later are going to be assigned to a burning hell. They will be in the kingdom too. But aren't you glad you settled the account ahead of time, if you are indeed converted after your repentance? From what I have in my files, this paper was published for... April of 2002. Here we see that 15 years ago, Clifton was professing what we still profess today, that salvation is by race apart from works, and that ultimately all Israel shall indeed be saved. Clifton continues, and he says, to show you, Ted R. Wyland is still holding the position on the parable of the wheat and the tares, which he learned at his Christian Leadership College in Denver, Colorado. I will quote a ludicrous statement which he made in his Eve, Did She or Didn't She, on page 72. And quoting Wyland, Instead, this parable of the wheat and the tares is simply contrasting righteous Israelites with wicked Israelites. Israelites. And what a joke that is. Clifton says, To believe such a thing, Wyland is implying that agriculturally, wheat has the same genetics as Darnell or tares. If, as he contends, the only difference between wheat and Darnell are righteous and wicked Israelites, In essence, he is claiming that wheat and tares are genetically identical. 
it would seem with this conclusion that Messiah is somewhat incompetent in presenting his teachings by way of parables. Or rather, could it be that Wyland is the one who is incompetent in understanding them? The truth is, the wheat and the tares are not genetically identical, and neither are the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, whom the wheat and tares represent. They may have had the same mother, but they surely had different fathers. By such spurious teachings as this, Wyland is doing more damage to Israel identity than he is doing good. And Clifton makes another parenthetical remark, stating that it might be intentional. I would say that if the wheat and the tares had the same origin, how could the devil have planted them? And if they have the same origin, what is every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted? Yahweh took credit for everything he created, even after it went astray. But there are others which he denies, rather than taking credit for. As Christ said to his adversaries, If God were your Father, if God were your Father, you would love me. Now Clifton turns to another, to address another anti-seedliner, Jack Moore. Jack Moore gets his two cents worth in by saying in his Seat of Satan, literal or figurative, on page 15, in no way does this parable of the wheat and the tares point to specific people by race, who are literal descendants of Satan, coming from his union with Mother Eve. Clifton responds, and he says, Moreover, on pages 15 and 16, Moore has his own convoluted idea of what he thinks the parable of the wheat and tares is all about. And quoting Moore, The tares, those who disobey God's law and refuse to be reconciled to him, will be gathered at this time by the reapers, who will be angels, not white Israelites bent on vengeance. This is one of the biggest problems with the seed line people. The words of Jack Moore. They are more concerned with pulling up the tares, whom they say are the Jewish people, than in getting their own house in order and their own Israelite people in a right relationship with God, so that he can do the rooting out work. As a result, we find the seed liners doing exactly what Jesus warned them not to do, rooting up the wheat along with the tares. I can assure you from the word of God that when the rooting up process takes place, there are going to be white Israelites among the tares who will be rooted up along with God's other enemies. And here we have it. It's all relative. It's all rel- it, It's all relative. It's all salvation by works. If you're a good boy, you're going to be saved. If you're a bad boy, you're going to hell. That's work salvation. Whether you want to think so or not, If you have to do something to be saved, that's salvation by works. Rather, Christ had promised that not one wandering sheep would remain lost. The racial message of Scripture is important because we must correctly identify the enemies of God, the flood from the mouth of the serpent, and the people of God, so that we can properly heed the call to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean, which Paul informs us is required of us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. How do we come out from among them? 
if we do not know who is who. There are a thousand other things to say to Jack Moore in answer to that. Clifton says, Clifton responds to Jack Moore and says, I have two questions. Where in the Bible does Moore get his evidence to substantiate these claims? Where is his verification that this parable of the wheat and the tares is not racial in nature? As already documented in this special notice, both the words 4690, or seed, and 5207, children, mean kinship and posterity, sperma and huios. How much more racial can it be? Furthermore, if one will read some of Jack Moore's other publications, one will find that he has a very peculiar position on race and talks out of both sides of his mouth on that subject. Remember, Scripture says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And we do not know which of Moore's papers Clifton refers to, but many of them are still available online at israelelect.com. Clifton continues and he says, Further evidence concerning the meaning of the term seed is found in the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, volume Q through Z. Seed is used to indicate both agricultural and human seed, the later both in a narrow physical sense and as a description of the descendants of a common ancestor. The Israelite was commanded not to mix his seed in any field or vineyard, but to plant only one crop, citing Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 22. There is a stricture, or critical remark, parallel to that regarding the mixture of human seed by intermarriage with other nations. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, the common ancestor to the wheat is Seth, the son of Adam. The common ancestor of the tares is Cain, the son of Satan through Eve. And we would further assert that while the tares are... And that last sentence, I'm sorry... That last sentence concerning the parable of the wheat and the tares was Clifton's sentence and not did not belong to the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia or the Bible. He's only giving us the implications of the correct definition of seed. We would further assert that while the tares are actually the bastards among us, That does not preclude the idea that the non-Adamic nations also have their origin in the so-called tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they are the goat nations whose fate is that same fate as the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Clifton continues by discussing the tares. While many commentaries address the topic of tares... A very good description for the term is given by the Westminster Dictionary of the Bible by Henry Gaiman on page 591. Tares, the rendering of the Greek zidzanion, that's the Greek word zidzanion, in Matthew chapter 13, citing four different verses of the chapter, 
And there's a note here that the revised version has Darnell in the margin. The tear, Vicia Sativa, a vetch with pinnate and purple-blue or red papillonaceous flowers, would be easily distinguished from the wheat. The Greek word, zidzanian, is probably of Semitic origin and corresponds to the Arabic word zuan, which denotes lalium, and to Talmudic zonin, I guess the zonin is a plant mentioned in the Talmud, the bearded darnel, lalium temulinentum, temulentum, yes, I got it, lalium temulentum, I'm sorry, is a poisonous grass, almost indistinguishable from wheat, while the two are only in blade, but which can be separated without difficulty when they come into ear, when they're full-grown and the bud appears. The poison from the tares, Clifton says, is caused by a fungus. The darnel is host to an ergot-like smut fungus, which infects the seeds. The fungus is a serious poison if eaten by animals or man, and from Clifton had gotten that from the Pictorial Bible Dictionary by Merrill C. Tinney. And he goes on to say that from this description, we can easily apply the term tares to the Jews. And I would say that unwittingly, the term smut fungus is absolutely befitting of the Jews. Clifton says that you will notice that when the Darnell comes into flower, the colors are purple, blue, or red because the Jews represent a few members of the tribe of Judah who didn't keep their bloodline pure, they would naturally appear as a counterfeit royal blue, which in turn serves to identify them with the tares. But the color red is even more significant as it can represent communism, for which the Jews are the inventors. Not only that, but it is the color of Esau from whom they also descend. It is also the color of the red dragon of Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, which represents Herod, the Jewish Edomite racial proselyte, who attempted to murder the Emmanuel child, Clifton's reference to Christ, shortly after his birth. And for Herod's father's and mother's lineage, check Josephus's wars, Book 1, Antiquities, Book 14, several different passages of each. Josephus attests in several places that Herod was an Edomite after both of his parents, his mother and his father. Clifton says, furthermore, the poison from the Darnell seed would be representative of the poison, leaven of the Pharisees, which churchianity today is so infected with. Who says the tares don't represent the Jewish people? (laughs) We must say that the allegory of the tares very well represents the Jews and all bastards among us, as the seed of the serpent extends well beyond Jewry alone, to include Arabs, Mexicans, the other bastards of Mesopotamia, and others with whom they have become mingled. Clifton 
continues by citing a woman writer with whom we are not familiar. And he says, Della Stanley, in her book Adam's Tree, published in 1975, puts it very nicely about the parable of the wheat and the tares at the end of chapter 34 and the beginning of 35, entitled, Pharisees and Scribes, A Generation of Vipers. I will now quote excerpts from these few pages as a critical review in order to counter the anti-Seedliner's arguments. And quoting Della Stanley, Jesus gave the people another parable concerning wheat and tares. He compared the kingdom of heaven to a man that sowed productive seed in his field. But while his men or servants slept, an enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. When the plants came up and brought forth fruit, the tares came up also. The servants wanted to go and gather out the tares. But the man said, wait until the harvest time. Then he instructed the reapers to gather the tares first and bind them in bundles to burn them together and gather the wheat into his barn. When Cain killed Abel, he was cursed and banished from the presence of God and the curse was never lifted. And at this time, the seed of man was divided into two groups. The descendants of Seth that replaced Abel, which were the children of God, and the descendants of Cain, which became the children of the devil. And Della Stanley obviously did not understand Genesis 3, Genesis chapter 3, the way that we might understand it. And there were other races extant, which we believe were descended from the sins and corruptions of the fallen angels, such as those which are described in One Enoch and other writings. But they would certainly not be counted among the seed of man. Clifton continues with his citation from Della Stanley. Generations later, Canaan, the son of Ham, was cursed, and the curse was never lifted. Therefore his descendants became the children of the devil. And there's a parenthetical remark here, and I believe it belongs to Clifton, where it says, by admixture with Kenites, Genesis 15:19, And that would be true when the Canaanites mixed with the Rephaim and the Kenites and the other tribes which have no genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, so their origin is obscure. When the Canaanites mixed with them, they certainly did become the children of the devil. It is clear that the Canaanites had mixed not only with the Kenites, but also with the Rephaim of Genesis chapter 6, the giants, and also with several other tribes of unrecorded and ostensibly non-Adamic origin. Again, continuing with the citation from Della Stanley. Nimrod was another descendant of Ham, and he built cities, among them Babylon. When the Israelites under Joshua pushed a portion of the Canaanites out of the land of Canaan, they dispersed and some went to Babylon. Later still, there were Shelonites, descendants of Sheba, the son of Judah of the house of Jacob, whose mother was a Canaanite. Neither were they allowed to rule through the house of Judah. 
And let me say that the remarks concerning Babylon here seem to be mere conjecture. There were already Canaanite tribes spread as far east as Babylon, which are known from inscriptions. Continuing once more with Della Stanley, the people that returned to Jerusalem from the 6th century BC captivity were not of the house of Israel, but were a remnant of the house of Judah. It was, but it was of the royal house of Zedekiah and his followers that God said, I will deliver them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a proverb, a reproach, a taunt, and a curse. It was mostly the members of Zedekiah's house and his followers that intermarried with the cursed descendants of Canaan, and is a another parenthetical remark here, which I think probably belongs to Clifton, in regards to Canaan, where it says that the descendants of Canaan had also mixed with the Kenites, the descendants of Cain. And let me say that what Della Stanley says here is almost true, as the house of Zedekiah was to be delivered to the bad figs, along with others of the house of Judah. As we read in Jeremiah chapter 24, from verse 8, And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith Yahweh, So will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem, that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, in all the places where I shall drive them. So we see that Zedekiah and his princes, along with the residue of Jerusalem, and the Judahites that had thought to escape to Egypt, were all punished in this manner. Once again, continuing with a citation from Della Stanley. After the return of the Jews to Jerusalem, or the Judeans properly to Jerusalem, there emerged a number of sects called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the scribes. John the Baptist called these people a generation or race of vipers. Jesus called them hypocrites and children of the devil, and cautioned his disciples to beware their doctrines. He speaks of Satan and his kingdom in Luke 11, verse 18, and everywhere he went, the scribes and Pharisees followed and opposed everything that he did. And again, this is an oversimplification. Perhaps over 300 years after the return of the Judeans to Jerusalem, the sects of the Pharisees and Sadducees had emerged. And maybe almost a hundred years after that, a hundred more years, the sect of the Herodians appeared. The scribes were a sort of class and a vocation, but they were not a sect. Returning to Clifton's citation of Della Stanley. There was quite a division among the Judeans, or Jews, for the sayings of Jesus. She has Jews. Some believed and some believed not. They came to him and said, How long? 
dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus replied, I have told you, but you believe not, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and I and my Father are one. And the Jews took up stones to stone him. But Jesus said, If God were your Father, then you would love me, for I came from God. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. And down here, I'm sorry I didn't see this as I edited this paper, but down here we learned that Clifton did indeed supply the comments in the brackets. And this is another oversimplification. There was quite a division among the Judeans for the, saying, for the sayings of Yahshua. Those who believed Christ and accepted Christianity and lost their identity as Judeans, as Paul had told them. They were one in Christ. They were Christians, and neither Judean or Greek. Those who do not believe, who did not believe now, who did not believe Christ, I'm sorry, they ultimately became today's Jews. Clifton concludes where he speaks of Della Stanley's shortcomings, and he says, What Della Stanley failed to explain was, of the two factions, one favoring diplomacy with Babylon and the other with Egypt, the house of Zedekiah favored the latter. After Nebuchadnezzar captured Zedekiah, and killing his seventy sons and gouging out his eyes, the remainder of his surviving household forced Jeremiah to accompany them to Egypt, for which he had forewarned them against. After Jeremiah sailed to Britain with Teotephi, or at least he must have sailed west with the daughters of Zedekiah, the remainder fell under the judgment of a third dying by the sword, a third by pestilence, and a third being captured and taken to Babylon. Actually, one small group ended up in Elephantine in Egypt, where they built a temple after the fashion of Solomon's temple, citing or asking us to investigate the Elephantine papyri. And intermixing with African Cushite types, like Sammy Davis Jr., they became half-breed or Falasha Jews. And let me say that these were most likely mercenaries hired out of the people of Judah by the slightly later Persians who later mixed with Negroes. Clifton continues, You can't find a more rotten, bad fig than that. Half nigger and half Canaanite, I guess. How foolish, then, is Ted R. Weiland's remark, already quoted from his Eve Did She or Didn't She on page 72, but this time, Clifton says, I will finish it, and quoting Weiland, instead, this parable, meaning the parable of the wheat and the tares, is simply contrasting righteous Israelites with wicked Israelites, much the same as the good and evil figs of Jeremiah 24. Clifton responds and says, You can see from this, Wyland hasn't the slightest clue why the house of 
Zedekiah was considered naughty figs. While Della Stanley did quite well, she should rather have linked the bad figs primarily with elephantine in Egypt. And actually, I wouldn't go that far. That there certainly are, or there certainly were, bad figs at elephantine. There's no doubt. But they weren't the bad figs punished in 70 A.D. Actually, Clifton almost reaches the mark here, but Della Stanley falls far shorter. And Ted Wyland falls far, 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 far shorter. Many people mistakenly interpret Jeremiah chapter 24 as if it were saying that the Judahites to be punished were already the bad figs. But that is not true. They were not considered to be bad figs. But for their punishment, they were to be given over to the bad figs, which is a very different situation. There are three parties involved in the prophecy, good figs, bad figs, and Judahites, who were going to be punished by being given over to the bad figs. Being given over to the bad figs, it is evident that they had ultimately mingled their seed with the Canaanites and Edomites, and were indeed driven into all the countries of the earth for a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 9. So will I give, and as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith Yahweh, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Judah of, of Jerusalem, I'm sorry, that remain in this land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. So will I give. He's giving these people to the evil figs. That's how I interpret the passage. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night we will be on the road, so we will have some help from Arthur Lee and present some of his recent sermons here on Christogenia Saturdays. I will be back at Christogenia Saturdays from Ohio, I suspect, from Ohio, next week, if things go the way they the way that I imagine they might go. Again, thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel and good night.
Don't you know that I'll always be true? 